0: you're listening to the Cine Club podcast this
1: is ray day oh ray day ethereal theater of the brain
2: Ray Day Film in Ray Day Film.
0: Cineblats, Meat Days, Kino Staccato, Pulverized Cinema. These are just a few of the mysterious titles from the sprawling filmography of Jeff Keane, the Brighton-based experimental filmmaker and artist whose career spanned from the late 1950s to his death in 2012. I've long been fascinated by Jeff's films and wanted to know more about his life and his singular approach to cinema, so I got in touch with his daughter, Stella.
1: I'm Stella Keane, a.k.a. Stella Star, and I'm a daughter of Jeff Keane and manage his archive, and I help make his films and was in the films, and I help tell his story still today.
0: And for further assistance in navigating Jeff's universe, I spoke with John Marchant, who recently hosted a show of Jeff's art at his gallery space in Brighton.
2: Well, my name is John Marchant, I run a gallery down here in Brighton, we represent a number of international artists and the Jamie Reid archive. So when I was approached by Stella Keane, who I'd known for many years, about doing a centenary exhibition here about Jeff Keane, I, I jumped at it, because it's an honour to do anything with his work and when you do any sort of exhibition you take a deep dive in, you know, you, you, uh, you get, the, uh, get the air tank on and down you go and it's always fascinating. And it's been particularly exciting getting to know Jeff Keane's work as well as this.
0: Quick disclaimer here, John's gallery is in the center of Brighton in a popular spot for buskers. And a guy across the street was really going to town playing one long shrill slide guitar solo for the entire time we were speaking, which as you'll hear is audible in the recording. I started my conversations with John and Stella by asking them a bit of a cruel question. How would they describe Jeff Keane's films to someone who'd never seen them?
2: How would you describe his films to someone who'd never seen them? Fast-paced blitzkrieg of imagery, character, colour, sound. Yeah, like nothing else, actually. Yeah, it's sort of exploding image in front of you. You
1: have to go in with an open mind for a start. They're very fast, but as he said, still serious, so... What you tend to get is people coming to his films for the first time are just so blasted by the the speed of the films and the sheer volume of ideas and the density of what's going on and that often they can come across as being quite aggressive because they often have quite noisy soundtracks or, you know, there's a real play of... ...violent and sexualized imagery in them as well... ...which is quite difficult for people to immediately get their heads round... ...but actually if you start to break it down and look at them again and again... ...you'll see certain themes coming back and forth all the time... ...and what he's doing is he's using popular populist pop art imagery... ...to tell a particular story and that story is invariably about... ...the need to get back to a simpler way of life and getting back to nature... With a lot of his films, he's kind of acknowledging the urban landscape, he's acknowledging the tragic inevitability of war in life. So it's very multifaceted, his his ideas, and that comes through in the films because you've got this blasting of, of all these fast things, and a lot of the time it's because he had so many ideas and so many things he wanted to say that he almost, he had to do it in this blasting way to try and fit in as much that he wanted to say as possible into the films that he made. And invariably the films are quite short, but they have so much in them. I mean, I'm, I'm still looking at them now and I was helping make them. And I'm still finding new stuff to um, think about and read in them.
0: Part of the reason this question is unfair is that it implies Jeff's films are just one thing, which they aren't. There are short, whiplash-inducing works incorporating stop-motion and hand-drawn animation with elements of collage drawing imagery from pop culture, especially American comic books and pulpy detective novels. Some of the films play more like home movies featuring friends and family, with reels of film run through the camera at least twice to create multiple exposures. Some could be described as non-narrative, others combine fragments of B-movie-inspired storylines to create something like Jeff Steak on an old-fashioned serial. Much of the work plays with the tactility of celluloid, with Jeff bleaching, scratching, or punching holes in the film stock. Though later in his career, we'd also experiment with video and computer-generated animation. One thing all Jeff's films do have in common is that they feel like a particularly close insight into his mind, the iconography and themes that obsessed him. So to explore Jeff the Filmmaker, let's first think about Jeff the Man. What formative experiences might have shaped his work?
1: I mean, there's that whole business of him going into the army at such an early age, and that was such a transformative period in his life, because he was only 18 when he was called up. And that was a real shock to the system, I think, because he'd been brought up in a really quiet rural backwater, as it were, in Wiltshire, a small village in Wiltshire. And I had that quite safe upbringing with, you know, a really solid family background and all this kind of stuff. And to be thrown into that whole war zone at that age was a really traumatic and formative experience, really. So that, I think, changed a lot of things for him and and made him grow up quite quickly and learn a lot about life. He was stationed in various areas of the UK working on these special ops experimental stuff because of his amazing intelligence he was tended to be put into special ops experimental work where they were working on tanks engines and new developments for the floating tanks that were in D day and all that kind of stuff so he kind of avoided combat that way at least thank god he learned a lot from that i think and it was also something that changed his whole attitude to things and when he was on leave, he was going to London and seeing exhibitions a lot because he was already really interested in art and was already experimenting with paintings and stuff a lot before he went into the army, even. But then he was really getting into art while he was in the army and doing lots of sketching and painting and seeing these exhibitions, but also experiencing London through the Blitz and, you know, the war torn zone that it was then. And so all of these things kind of informed what happened next, really, after he came out of the army. He was kind of at a bit of a loose end, really, when he was demobbed and um, moved to London and went to Chelsea Art School to study art. But he was doing more commercial art, and he wasn't really getting enough out of that, so he kind of drifted away from that. And it's this idea that a lot of people from that generation who had been through that whole process of the World War II and coming out of the army were lost souls, really, after that, and trying to find their way. And then he drifted down to Brighton, and that's how he ended up staying in Brighton and starting a whole new way of working, really, and thinking.
0: After the war, a slightly lost Jeff found himself in Brighton. He always stayed in Brighton, right, from then for the rest of his life, is that right? Yeah, he he was demobbed
1: in 1948, and he'd lived up in London for a bit before then, but it must have been the early 50s when he moved down to Brighton. That was a kind of organic thing that happened, he just came to visit, I think he was staying with an aunt then actually in Brighton, and obviously fell in Mm -hmm. love with Brighton at the time, you know, it was a very different Place to what he'd been used to growing up in landlocked Wiltshire. Here was a kind of crazy seaside space that already had the essence of what Brighton is now, in that it had this eccentric edge and a faded glamour. And that obviously captured his imagination at the time, and he ended up staying here. And it was quite soon after he moved down that he met my mother, so that sealed the deal, really. Because he was a self-taught artist anyway, and because he hadn't gone down that route that so many of our established artists like Hockney and Co. have done, i.e. go to the Slade or Royal College. And also he was a bit older than those artists anyway, so he was more the abstract expressionist era and surrealism too, so those were the main influences in his art at the time. Pre pop art, really. So he didn't get involved in that whole scene that so many artists seem to have been in London, where they'd gone to those art colleges and then become part of the establishment quite quickly because they'd been on the scene at the right time. And also, he never really wanted to be part of the art establishment in that way. He was always essentially an anarchist right from the start. You know, his spirit was.
0: It was in Brighton as Jeff worked a series of jobs as a gardener and for the council's parks department that he started to experiment with film.
1: He'd always had a passion for film but hadn't really started experimenting with it until the mid-50s when he just happened to meet this guy Ray Barker who was um, on his kind of gardening route and they just made friends and um, both shared a passion for film. And they just started playing around and experimenting. My dad was borrowing a camera off of him. And I think my dad just got the bug really. I think because he was frustrated with painting. He loved painting and did lots of painting throughout his life. I think he was frustrated with with the canvas as being too limiting basically he wanted to do things that went outside the limited space of a particular canvas size.
0: In the mid-1960s Better Books on London's Charing Cross Road became a regular haunt for Jeff.
1: I think it's so fascinating about Better Books because it's this idea that a bookshop can be such a a creative space as well and somewhere where all these amazing things can happen that are just not about books, they're about art, they're about sound, performance, theatre, film, all these aspects. It was about creating a space it seemed. It was led by a visionary character in Bob Cobbing who was a fantastic character in his own right and was very much interested in sound art and experimental poetry. And At that time that was a really cutting edge thing in itself and that seemed to attract All the people that were really interested in all these underground revolutionary things that were happening at the time. People who then went on to become parts of the establishment like the Beatles and Ken Russell and Peter Cook and Dudley Moore and all these amazing characters, the goons. They all seemed to congregate in this space, the bookshop. My dad went off with that idea because it seemed to be an easy thing. It was an easy route where you didn't have to go to an established gallery and and try and get in on that scene. You had a ready-made, free scene to experiment with ideas and show people, you know, the audience. Um, And my dad was really inspired by that, and he went on to then... After, you know, being involved in Better Books a lot, he went on to then... Try and recreate that a bit in Brighton, taking over bookshops or taking over empty shop spaces to exhibit in.
0: This was a place where Jeff could see cutting edge work in film and other areas of the arts, but also meet like minded people. And Better Books became a fertile ground for collaboration. His 1967 film Marvo movie is a good document of this era, featuring an unsettling whispered soundtrack made with Better Books manager and poet Bob Cobbing and composer and sound artist Ania Lockwood. <laughs> Sound is very important to a lot of Jeff's work. Some of the films are silent, others accompanied by pop music or old jazz records, but many of the films have soundtracks as densely layered and as overwhelming as the images they accompany.
2: Sound was, it was important to Jeff. actually. It wasn't just a kind of an adjunct to the imagery, it was part and parcel of, of the work itself, and he worked hard at getting the soundtracks together. He would steal into cinemas, he would go on recording trips to amusement arcades, and build up these landscapes of noise for his films with multi sensory creatures. And you could actually close your eyes and still watch or listen to a Jeff Keane film quite successfully, actually. But he, he liked it full on, didn't he?
0: Film screenings at Better Books eventually gave birth to the London Filmmakers Co-op, which was established in 1966. Initially a not-for-profit distribution enterprise, it grew to incorporate a film workshop and cinema space. Whilst there was certainly no such thing as a limited house style at the co-op, I have always wondered how Jeff's maximalist bombardment of imagery fit in there. If his desire was to make explosive, boundaryless films, did this put him at odds with co-op filmmakers like Malcolm Le and Peter Goodall, He made fascinating and beautiful but very disciplined, conceptual work.
1: Yes, he was one of the founding members of that. You know, when it started the London Maker's Cup, it was a, a really amazing experimental space. It's very much to do with the timing, actually, because, of course, come 1970, that's when the real structuralist and conceptual stuff set in, and that's when people were really working on much more pared-down and um, very serious avant-garde canon, very much coming from the academic point of view. So quite quickly... My dad's stuff didn't really sit in with that kind of scene. He never really was accepted in the same way that he had been earlier with the experimental stuff at Better Books. It was just a change in politics and, you know, the vision of things. And I think people were trying something different with film in the 70s. It was a lot to do with politics. And my dad's stuff was never really involved in that kind of political thing. I mean, he continued to, to exhibit there and, and show a lot of his films and did performances, a lot of expanded cinema performances, but he felt a bit kind of marginalised, I think.
2: Well, Jeff, I think, was a very serious artist, actually. Despite being playful in his output and his method, his intention was very serious. And I think that's where he connected with a lot of those people. And I think that that's partly what gives us a sense of him as an outlier down here in Brighton, because he stayed here. He didn't move to back to London, didn't live in Los Angeles or San Francisco. You know, if he'd been in San Francisco, he would have been part of a whole kind of City Lights crowd as well, because, of course, he was a writer and a poet as well. And we'd be seeing him in a different light today. I think his geographical location has impacted quite a lot on his relationships with the history of the 20th century avant-garde. Stella mentioned expanded
0: cinema. What's that? That was
1: a a new thing in the 60s that people were playing around with, and... It was basically taking the film outside of the normal screen setup. By that, I mean you're creating multiple projections that can be set up around the whole of the room, so you're almost creating an immersive experience. Already that was quite a shocking idea I think in the 60s that you could project not just one film at a time but several and have different moods going on around that. But then also taking that further with the use of sound and experimenting with that. And also by then, by an extension of that, that you take some of the characters out of the film and actually have them in front of you performing in front of the screen. So you've got this multi-layered Theatrical experience. I love that idea that it's a really immersive and interactive experience. Often it encouraged um, the audience to kind of actively participate too sometimes.
0: So, no two screenings of Jeff's expanded cinema experiments were quite the same.
1: It was never going to be the same. That again is a marvellous idea. It's almost like, you know, the circus is in town for one night only and you're just going to see this particular performance in this way. And then it's going to be completely different again the next night.
0: We've already explored how formative Jeff's experiences in the second. World War were in his life, but war is also a key theme in his films.
1: His idea of war as well is multifaceted because he's not just talking about war in the world. He's talking about the war that, for instance, an artist feels when he feels like he's trying to express himself and is frustrated constantly by lack of funds or, you know, lack of ability to be able to exhibit in the way they want to or whatever they want to do. All the frustrations that a creative person experiences in life.
0: One recurring phrase in Jeff's filmography is art war. Between 1990 and 1995, he made a series of works, first on Super 8 and later on video under this title. Is this conflict in the life of a struggling artist what he was referring to here
1: yeah and and also you know he came up with these other terms like prisoner of art and by that he meant that he didn't have a choice he had to be an artist you know it's not as if he could stop doing it and do something else so in that sense he is a prisoner of his own art and so art war is the same thing it's the the constant struggle to get your voice heard so there's that kind of war and there's the inner war as well that he's talking about which is very much to do with the struggle (laughs) one has day-to-day with life and how one navigates through life whether it's emotional stuff or you know other difficult stuff
2: there is also more overt war imagery in jeff's films so we get explosions we get guns or plastic guns of course sound as well the sound of explosions which he would kind of creep into cinemas and record Mm -hmm. surreptitiously but he's he's really i think he's really looking at the absurdity of these things Obviously we're living through very difficult times now with what's happening in the Middle East and to have a show which has terms like art war in it is not that straightforward because we're, we're obviously we're, we're very sensitive to these situations.
0: The way this iconography combines with the sheer speed and intensity of Jeff's films is very powerful but he is in no way glorifying war. His own photograph in his army days appears repeatedly throughout his work which suggests that he is reflecting on the impact of his own war experience. As Stella has already mentioned, Jeff regarded war as an inevitability by these anti-war films.
1: Very much so, yeah. He was part of the anti-war demonstrations in the 60s, so all the Vietnam marches and the um, CND marches. He was very much against that. He was somebody who loved nature and and gardening and animals. So yeah, he was completely anti-war and actually, you know, the whole business of being in the army. He lost a lot of friends in the war and, you know, he saw some terrible things even though he wasn't actually actively fighting he he did see some terrible things and that all left a, a really deep impact.
2: But Jeff was definitely a confirmed pacifist. He had been involved with the Intelligence Corps and although he didn't see service on the front or anything like that thankfully he was involved with trying to create more effective tank machinery and so so forth so he was involved necessarily involved not out of choice in producing more a, a more efficient war machine i can only surmise because i never spoke to him about it but i can only surmise that was deeply affecting to him to have had to have been co-opted to do that that's going to affect anyone's psyche
1: Ultimately, he's talking about love. His films are actually, if you look deeply at them, they're very romantic.
2: Jeff also
0: seemed interested in recontextualizing war imagery borrowed from pre-existing sources. Is there a sense in which he's critiquing the way war is represented, even glamorised, in the media?
2: He
1: tends to draw imagery from war movies um, that were made at the time, so it's all propaganda. I mean, my dad said that all film is propaganda anyway, and... He was kind of commenting on that by drawing on those things or newsreels and the way that they portray war, Um, the comic books, you know, the American comics, how they portrayed war. It's it's a particular line and, and way that they approached all that that is not necessarily correct. And he was kind of commenting on that by by using that imagery, much in the way that the pop artists were using a lot of that kind of popular imagery.
0: The images and sound from war films that Jeff incorporated into his work also points to another obsession of his, the movies. I get the impression Jeff's love for cinema was immense and knew no boundaries of genre or taste.
1: There were a lot of really great cinemas in Brighton, actually, in the 50s onwards. Sadly, no longer with us, most of them. Um, but there was an incredible range of cinemas and some of them were specialising in particularly, you know, really bad B-movies or some of them would be more art house or whatever. And my parents just went voraciously every day almost to the movies because it was so cheap to go then. They would go and, and just watch loads and loads of movies. It was early on really that my dad was interested in setting up a film society in Brighton, which he did because my mum was at the art college at the time. They set up a film society and... Showing interesting art house and experimental films. They they were then programming films, amazing range of films. You know, Kurosawa and. Um all these amazing art movies, you know. So yeah, my dad had real good strong grounding in, in all the films that he loved, and it was right across genres, you know. He loved the lowbrow as well as the highbrow, so it was <laughs> there was no differentiation really. He just loved movies. And you see that love all the time through his own movies.
0: So Jeff loved classic cinema, but the films he made are formerly far from classical.
1: But he wasn't interested in making a narrative film himself. He just, he didn't have the time, I don't think, to spend trying to make a narrative movie. He had too many ideas. He needed to just get a whole load of ideas down as quickly as possible.
0: The Hollywood influence is particularly evident in my personal favourite of Jeff's films, White Dust, made between 1970 and 1972 on 16mm. White Dust reflects Jeff's tendency to cram in as many ideas as he could into each film, sacrificing any sense of a consistent plot. Instead, he runs the gauntlet through seemingly every major genre of the classical Hollywood era. Science fiction, film noir, gothic horror, swashbucklers, you name it. All accompanied by music that recalls B-movies from the 40s or 50s. Like Andy Warhol or John Waters, Jeff drew on a repertory of stars for his films. Friends and family performing a number of recurring roles, many of them seemingly inspired by comics, B-movies and Hollywood serials. Dr. Volta, The Spider Woman, Volvana, Silverhead, Mothman, Wasp Woman, and many more.
1: He was was creating his own universe of almost like the Marvel universe, you know, of superheroes. They're kind of archetypes, aren't they? You get the hero, the heroine, and all these evil characters. He was drawing there on his love of comic books. He collected a lot of American comic books and cartoons. But also the movies, you know, you get these tropes in movies all the time with the way um, stories are told. You have the hero, you have the villain, you have the, the heroine and all these kind of things. And he was referencing that, but by creating his own um, particular universe that was very eccentric and quirky.
0: There's one recurring figure I'm particularly fond of. The Breathless Investigator.
1: My dad loved film noir and he's also kind of referencing there the surrealist love of pulp novels, the mystery novel and the detective figure. The Breathless Investigator was named because there's always a detective running about chasing the villain in these film noir films and they must have been out of breath a lot of the time because they seem to be always filmed running down dark streets chasing after people all the time.
2: Jeff
0: himself also had an on-screen alter ego, Dr Gaz.
1: (laughs) (laughs) His mad alter ego, yeah. Yeah. The mad scientist character. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because he's invariably appearing on screen in this persona as this mad scientist character a playful anarchic figure who comes in to mess things up and destroy things there seems to be he was actually a very shy retiring person in real life incredibly modest and shy and yet his character on screen is is quite wild and anarchic and and very different and i think you find that a lot with performers anyway that they'll be quite quiet normally in in real life and then they have this stage persona as it were, that allows them to be somebody that they're, they're not really in, in
0: real life?
2: Well, he is obviously, he's Jeff. Dr. Gaz was one of a number of personas that Jeff took on because he was very interested in film, he was very interested in archetypes, very interested in Greek mythology, and Dr. Gaz is a character he could kind of hide himself behind and project all sorts of uh, ideas through. Yeah, Dr. Gaz is, is Jeff. Jeff kind of writ large rather than the real Jeff, of course. Dr. Gaz, as with all Jeff's films, extremely fast-paced. You know, it's a million miles a minute. But Jeff himself moved very carefully and was quietly spoken. So in order to put a mask on, he adopted this Dr. Gaz persona.
0: By far the most prominent star in Jeff's films is his wife, Jackie, who performed under the name Nadine.
2: Well,
1: Nadine was... There was a whole set of serials in the 30s, I think, called The Perils of Pauline. And it was all about this this character who would get herself into all kinds of troubled situations and always manage to escape them and, you know, go on to fight another day. And she was quite a, an intrepid heroine character in these early short film serials that were made for the, the cinema, you know. And I think that's what that character was referencing actually it's probably also a reference to Naja the um, Andre Breton character in, from his book as well as my dad was always um, referencing a lot of the surrealists she was a frustrated actress anyway I think she'd always wanted to be an actor and had done various stage work and film extra work as well before getting seriously involved in dad's films and her creativity was extraordinary in that she was able to transform herself into all these different amazing characters and create her own costumes, and did all her own makeup and hair and everything. And that was her creative process. Her performance art was was her art, and it was a natural gift to my dad.
0: What was the working relationship between Jeff and Jackie?
1: <laughs> well, they were married for a start, so they were very intimately understanding of each other, and they were completely in tune with the creative process. So they. They just seemed to work really brilliantly together. My dad allowed my mother to express herself in the most extraordinary ways. They just worked brilliantly together. They just had an intuitive understanding of what was required, I think, and, and just worked brilliantly together.
0: So this is, sounds a real collaboration it was
1: a complete collaboration yeah really fascinating i wish i remembered more about it i mean at the time you know most of the time i was a kid so it was just like one long party really the whole thing was a fantastic picnic as a child you know but i'd love to have been able to remember more about how they actually did the that process of collaborating together in in that way
2: with jackie it was a slightly different thing than it was with jeff actually taking on a different persona because i think she was quite an extraordinary character anyway and my take on it which i've had talked to stella about is that she was the one that really validated a lot of what jeff wanted to do but also instigated it as well so it's easy to watch a film like mad love where there's quite a lot of nudity and much of it being jackie's it would be wrong to read that as jeff taking some kind of advantage over her as a, a kind of sexual cipher because that was something that she instigated. She wanted to do that, and she was like that as a person anyway. She was very free, I think, very smart. She was an artist in her own right, and uh, I think, although Jeff's name is on the on the can, as it were, with a lot of these works, it, they were definitely not just a collaborative work with Jeff and his friends, but particularly between Jeff and Jackie. I think
0: Stella also appears in Jeff's films. Firstly, as a baby in some of the home movie footage later taking on roles and acting alongside the likes of Dr Gaz in some later films she's credited with second camera what was the nature of her collaboration with her dad
1: i think I, I tended to be lumped into the whole family star production title that we had it was a given that it was made by the whole family really not just by him but yeah it's an interesting one the trajectory of of how my life went you know with my upbringing starting with me appearing in the films invariably as a baby and then as a small child dancing through inevitably in in a different costume or whatever, being part of the whole set of scenes that were happening. But then quite quickly, I ended up being second camera on a lot of the films. So a lot of the, the stuff that was shot was actually shot by me as, as well as my dad. And that was an amazing process as well, an amazing learning process to see how he was making the films. You end up getting into a kind of shorthand of understanding then of knowing what he wanted in terms of shots and stuff. So he almost didn't need to direct me in the end. I, I kind of knew what he wanted to capture. What I was involved with was part of the expanded cinema performance stuff, was the kind of noise art and music stuff that we were doing as part of the performance work there. So we had a few different musicians. Tony Sindon was involved in the early films as well as also doing experimental sound work with my dad in those expanded cinema performances. And so, yeah, I was taking part in that and I was... Um, invariably (laughs) either playing the saxophone or a different synthesizer this was like the late 70s early 80s so we were experimenting with the latest equipment in synthesizers and stuff
0: jeff is best known for his films but he was also a poet draftsman and painter working across many different mediums the recent show at the john marchant gallery demonstrates the variety of jeff's output
2: well we in the exhibition here as you say we have beautiful watercolor works that actually also a number of them feature some of these same characters like Mothman and Dirt Dog and so on. But they're artworks in themselves rather than being things that were made specifically to be frames in films. Jeff was also very interested in assemblage, and he he made a lot a lot of pieces in boxes and other standalone sculptural pieces. A lot of very meticulously made paintings. Yeah, we have a, an example of a notebook downstairs, which is an artwork in itself it's it's been split up into into pages so you can see each page of the notebook rather than usually in an exhibition you can only see what's open but this particular one Stella had approved for the, the notebook to be taken apart and in that rather than a narrative working through the the sequence of pages they're actually all different vignettes in each different page. He was a very accomplished drawer and he knew exactly where that line was going to go before he made it. One thing we did want to put in this show but we just couldn't because there wasn't enough space were a number of Jeff's cardboard pieces. He he made quite a lot of sculptural pieces which again were, sometimes they did feature in films but they weren't too made for film. They were sculptural pieces in themselves. I do think however that there is a kind of totality to everything that Jeff did. So there's an information flow going back and forth between the different media. So sound work, which he made, was obviously very important to the film. Some of the standalone pieces that he made did end up uh, as frames in the film. So it was all game, I think. yeah, you know, It was all ready material.
1: He was really working across quite a few mediums, actually. So he did, obviously, a lot of painting. He filled sketchbooks every every morning he would sit down and do um, sketching in his sketchbooks without fail every day Um, so there's a lot of sketchbooks (laughs) and he really loved um, using watercolor for that as well so he did a lot of watercolor work Um, but then he did a lot of um, larger paintings so there's works in acrylic and oils More classic, I guess, um, as a genre. But then he was experimenting a lot with prints and doing Xerox work and multiple printing and writing of poetry, all his beat poetry. is kind of tied in with some of his drawings as well, so you get these amazing drawings that have fabulous poetry written as part of the whole thing too. And of course all his collage work, which went again into his filmmaking process too, but lots and lots of amazing collage work that he was doing. And assemblages, so he was creating a lot of these surrealist inspired art assemblages which were part sculpture, part found object, Um, there's a lot of those amazing works.
0: As John and Stella suggest, there is a lot of overlap between Jeff's films and his other artwork. Large paintings on paper and cardboard sculptures frequently appear in the films, often destroyed for the camera. He had a name for this ritual of burning his art. A
1: burn up, yeah, yeah, we'll go for a burn up. Yeah, and he would never be filmed that as well. So he would go to a location, and it could have been, you know, the New Haven Tide Mills or various aspects of broken down areas of Brighton or whatever that he would go to, or the Whitehall Tip or whatever, and just take artworks out there or, or create artworks and then destroy them right in front of you and, and film it all.
0: The sheer volume of Jeff's work means that after his death, he left behind a vast archive of which Stella is now the custodian.
2: The archive is looked after by Jeff's daughter, Stella, and it's very, very extensive. There's a a number of pieces which have have been carefully framed and exhibited worldwide. There's a lot of stuff that's never been seen. There's things that Stella is still coming across in boxes and files that she's just not been able to get to until now. Even though Jeff died in 2012, so it's over 11 years ago.
0: Stella showed me some of the archive boxes piled up in the space between her hallway and kitchen, and this was just a small sample. The rest fills a shipping container. Sorting through all the amazing work Jeff amassed in his lifetime must be a challenge but fascinating too, as our understanding of his art continues to evolve. For example, Stella recently discovered that Jeff was making films earlier than she realised.
1: That's right. It'd always been assumed, and I'd even assumed that his first film was Whale back in 1960. But actually, I mentioned um, this character, Ray Barker, that he knew in the 50s in Brighton, who he started um, doing these experimental films with. And I only found out about this fairly recently from Ray himself. And Ray sent me these clips of these amazing early films that they did from 1955 onwards so there's a whole range of these fabulous short movies that they were making before his more established and recognized films were recorded.
0: John told me that before a recent screening of Mad Love they opened a spray-painted box that had been part of the exhibition and found inside a Super 8 film loop.
1: Yes. Well, that's actually a classic of his expanded cinema stuff. What he was doing with that was he'd have, for instance, a 16mm projector showing one main movie. Then he'd have, say, a couple of other Super 8 projectors showing other movies at the same time, which were Super 8 films with the 16mm. And then he would also have created these film loops, which would be set up on other Super 8 projectors, so they would just be going through the projector endlessly while the rest of the film is happening. And we found one of these film loops of his in one of the Super 8 projectors that was in one of the boxes in the exhibition. Just randomly, it was still there after all these years.
0: Then became part of that night yes. screening, right?
1: Yes, it did.
0: That screening was part of Brighton's Cine City Festival last November, and the programme featured several events in Jeff's honour. He was born in 1923, so last year marked his centenary. Hence the name of the exhibition at John's Gallery, 100 Years of Dr. Gaz. I asked him how he went about making selections from Jeff's vast archive.
2: Curating an exhibition is a curious thing to do. You have to take leaps of faith. You have to trust your initial judgment on things. So what you have to do really when you're choosing an exhibition is to think about the space you have. Think about what you're able to do, what your intention is for the exhibition and then go for it so for example downstairs we have a quad of four large scale photographic reproductions from film stills and they in themselves are they're beautiful prints they're very nicely reproduced but they kind of give a sort of give you that sense of immersion straight away because it's like a whole wall of imagery they they're quite extraordinary in themselves the images there. I mean, you've got to look at them and go, wow, what the heck's going on there? And then, of course, next to that, we have the films playing as well. So you can be looking at the images and hearing the sound and you turn then you see the film. We've got some pacing there of some black and white images of, Jack, of Jackie, uh, small uh, vintage prints. Stella has helped create
0: many exhibitions of Jeff's work over the years, including what was, if memory serves, my first introduction to his films. Shoot the Works, a retrospective held at Brighton Museum and Art Gallery in 2013.
1: That was probably one of the most challenging exhibitions to try and do because it was a retrospective. We wanted to. We actually worked on it for a year at least, and it was really intense because it was all the stuff we had to not include in the exhibition that was that was really difficult to choose from. We were trying to create over three rooms. A whole lifetime of extraordinary work. Hugely challenging to put on actually and, and present in the right way.
0: Another I didn't go to, although I wish I had, was Gaz Apocalypse, Return to the Golden Age and the Tate Modern Tanks, a 360 degree film installation accompanied by a live performance.
1: Again, actually trying to encompass all his film work into one room Um, which was a huge challenge, as you can imagine. And the way we devised it was to create a 360 degree screen where we had the multiple projections throughout his lifetime really of his work around the room so it was a really immersive experience again and we were really privileged to be able to recreate one of his expanded cinema type performances in that space as well.
0: Most people who love Jeff's work will tell you he's underappreciated. I asked both Stella and John why this might be and what his legacy is.
1: He was the first graffiti artist in this country that alone is is an amazing thing in the 60s that he was doing that let alone all the rest of the amazing genres of work that his his work encompasses and it goes right through from you know the 20th century into the 21st he was working all that time and it's it's an amazing body of work that has always kind of sat slightly outside of the the given art movement so it doesn't quite sit within the pop art movement because he was a bit older than the, the most of the pop artists and He's also a surrealist artist, but he's kind of later than most of the surrealists. So he kind of sits in between quite a few genres and that needs putting into context, I think.
2: He's underrepresented, that's for sure. But I think Jeff is of a key part in the, the history of experimental film in this in this country, which is very important in our history of contemporary art. It's very undersung, I'd say, but I think it's not just a film. It's as I said mentioned this term before the Totality of his work, which I think is is so tremendous. In doing a, an exhibition like this, of course, we're we're talking to institutions, not just in the UK but in America and so on as well, and and introducing Jeff to people that didn't maybe didn't know it, like Yale, the Yale Center for British Art director there, had never actually heard of Jeff Keen, which is kind of surprising considering how much fantastic work there is. I think he's probably one of those things that, in time, more people, probably abroad, I have to say will pick up on Jeff, because if, as it has been said a number of times before, if Jeff had been working on the West Coast, for example, then Jonas Meekers Film Anthology would have been all over it years ago. And Jeff's status would be very different internationally, but he was down here in Brighton, and uh, we don't have the funding in this country, really, to research and develop archives. I think we probably have to reach out elsewhere to really get jeff's due
1: and i think the fact that he was resolutely himself always and never bowed down to give him mores or whatever or, or ideas of how one should be as an artist he just carried on regardless and did it all on a budget of zero i mean it was just incredible I think those are really important things to remember, actually, to give yourself time to play with things, play with ideas and let things happen as they happen and to not worry too much about what people are going to think about it.
0: Enormous thanks to Stella and John for their time and their insights, and thanks to you for listening. If you like this episode, you might also enjoy episode one on the early Hove filmmaker G.A. Smith. Interestingly, Stella told me that Jeff was a fan of Smith's work. He lived just around the corner from St. Well Gardens and loved the idea that he was so close to this sacred site in the history of cinema. When I spoke to Frank Gray for the G.A. Smith episode, we talked about Jeff Keane before we recorded, and uh, Frank pointed out that there were some interesting parallels. The films that they made were very different, but they both had a very pragmatic sense of working with what they had. For example, they both made films featuring their wife and children in key roles, And Jeff might not have had the luxury of the vast private space that Smith had in St. Anne's, but watching his films, there is a sense in which the city of Brighton became his personal studio. The parks, the beach, and his beloved Whitehawk tip all fulfilled a similar function. Plus, they both share the honour of having a Brighton & Hove bus named after them. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Instagram at cineclubblog on Twitter or X at CineClubBlog or on Substack at cineclub.substack.com. You can email at thecineclub@gmail.com. at gmail.com. On the Substack, you'll find show notes, including some links to some of Jeff's films. It's also my blog where you can find my writing on various film related topics. You've been listening to the Cineclub podcast. I'm Joe Tindall. Thanks again and goodbye.